Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Paleo Valley Essential C Complex. You mean like vitamin C, right? Yes, like vitamin C. Hey, J-Star. What? Guess what's funny about scurvy? Nothing's funny about scurvy. Yeah, you got to have the C. Did you also know that um, humans are the only mammals that don't make their own vitamin C? Did you know that? You know, everyone comes to vitamin C and they're like, vitamin C for immune system, right? Okay, obviously. But... The reason I am a huge fan of this C-complex made from foods, and by the time you wake up in the morning, you're actually C-depleted. And what we're actually finding out is that if you want to make the collagen in your body, if you want to make connective tissue, you have to have vitamin C. And in our population of friends and maniacs who are doing their good job, drinking the bone broth, eating all the things, and even taking the collagen, you've got to have the C on board. Otherwise, you can't utilize all that to reinforce all your connective tissues. And because we don't make it naturally as humans, you actually have to supplement with it. And we are huge fans of Paleo Valley, all of their products. But one of my favorites is the Essential C Complex. Yeah. I take it every day religiously. I give it to my kids too because what I find is, yes, I can eat all of these superfoods myself because they're, it's great to have all these superfoods lying around. Comma, Caroline doesn't want... A whole bunch of exotic berries for breakfast. The other thing I like about it is that most uh, vitamin C supplements are just made exclusively of ascorbic acid. Did I pronounce that right? Um, Which is only one fraction in the vitamin C compound. Um, And the Paleo Valley Essential C Complex has all of the compounds that you would need to have a full-service vitamin C. Yeah, and let me just reiterate again, as Juliet and I are sort of obsessed on uh, tissue health and durability and longevity, it starts with the tissues. And you've got to have the basic building blocks. That's why Essential C is the bomb. We are huge fans of this. We take it ourselves every day. We give it to our kids. If you want to get some, go to the readystate.com slash essential C and use the code readystate for 15% off. Hey everyone, this episode of the Ready State is brought to you by our friends at Kabuki Strength. If you've been around the Ready State for a minute, you know that one of the tenets of our business is doing dope stuff with dope people. And it's such a no-brainer to point you to our friends at Kabuki. So a couple things around Kabuki Strength. They design, engineer, manufacture incredible strength equipment that solves problems. I have a wonky wrist. You may know this. But the Cadillac bar allows me to press do all the things that I want to do. It's bananas how good that bar is. And it's so good, I actually have one at the gym and I need one for home. And Juliet was like, you don't need one at home. I'm like, I do. It's how I express myself through my movement. So it turns out they also do incredible research-based education, world-class coaching, and they actually spend a lot of time in their communities. And some of that comes about because of who the founder is. Chris Duffin, Mad Scientist Duffin, is, I don't know, a friend of mine, a savant engineer, tech nerd, and turns out really strong person. And what's really nice about Kabuki is that they build equipment for athletes by athletes. Um, We love the pain pill. We love the boomstick. I have both of those in my mid-century modern living room because they are beautiful. 
gorgeous accoutrements. And sometimes you just need to lay there and let a heavy, beautiful, bespoke item smash the crap out of your quads. But also, I spend a lot of time um, lifting on the trap bar. The Duffins Trap Deadlift Bar is open-ended, allows me to get into split positions. And one of the things that happened before I had knee surgery was that I was looking for ways where I could get a little bit more quad engagement in my pulling because squatting was out. And I ended up doing a lot of work with the this incredible bar they developed because it made my body feel good, kept my legs and knees working in ways that I couldn't as I worked around the problem. So to date, I am a Kabuki fan. Do check them out. If you are a strength nerd, want to see what's going on, how they talk about the world, thereadystate.com slash Kabuki. That's K-A-B-U-K-I. Readystate.com slash Kabuki. We thank them for their support of this podcast. Matt Vincent is a traveling strength athlete, two-time Highland Games world champion and founder of Hate Brand Goods. Through his travels, Matt is pretty lucky, lucky enough to spend time with exceptional people who are chasing strength, fulfillment, and personal growth, literally every imaginable way. In fact, this is how I originally met Matt. I was introduced to him by our mutual friend, Mark Bell, who we've had on the podcast, and Matt was doing this crazy thing where you drive around the country and interview people you want to talk to. And it was called Drifta Lifta, which is pretty amazing. I came to appreciate Matt a great deal and so much that he became my one of my best friends. We went on the Grand Canyon together. We biked in Moab. In fact, he loves cats and I love cats. Matt's first book, Training Lab, he spells out the philosophy of the hate. And that's H, the Roman numeral eight. He tries to capture this spirit of self-improvement through, well, self-loathing or, you know, hating to suck. This idea serves as the spark that led to hate brand goods and a ton of adventure afterwards. Matt chronicles his travels and conversations with people in the strength game and beyond on his podcast, Um So, U-M-S-O, like, um, so? Anyway, we're glad to have Matt Vincent on the Ready State Podcast. Matt Vincent, welcome to the Ready State Welcome, Matt Vincent. Hello, friends. Happy to be back. Thanks for being here. So just to clear the room, everyone knows that we're friends. Not just friends, we're great friends. Like actual real-life friends. Real-life friends. Like and, maybe even family-ish and friends. And that's going to allow us— Your middle name is Mitchell. Yeah, like, like chosen family. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we have been on the Grand Canyon together. You and I have ridden bikes in the desert together. I have not met Doug, your new cat, but that's the only thing between us as total friends. Currently. Currently, your but new, it'll happen. Your, your new use cat. But I just want to start by saying, do you have any opinion that if Juliet had flexible ankles, she would have won the the CrossFit Games World Championship? Sorry, it, I'm sorry. Rephrase that. It, it would have been an inevitable reign. I'm saying like, you know, 2012 timeframe. So like, still 20, at the ranch? No, because <laughs> 2010 was the first year that it went to Carson. So I'm saying like in the 2011 2012 time frame, it would have been like a rain. So you, what you're saying is ankle mobility is what kept Julie or is the only thing that kept Juliet from being the master's version of Annie Thor's daughter. That in law school. (laughs) (laughs) And having two babies. Do do you feel like, do you feel like you two, especially being world champions? I'm sorry, former world champions. Do you feel like you're now just, you just kind of a world champion entitlement? Like, you're just like, yeah, I could do that. I'm a world champion. It transfers. Look, it's nice to know the thing that I was built to do well is at the furthest end of a niche as it possibly could be. 
I'm glad it wasn't coding or something really valuable that could have helped me for the rest of my life. Instead, it was throwing rocks in the field. So I'm just trying to pivot as good as possible since then. I think we're competing with you on the on like the furthest niche, you know, maybe in the opposite direction, but deep niche. We can talk about that more. Yeah, later. And, and in fact, I, just since we're here in this moment, my sport, your sport, Juliet was done on a river as far from civilization as possible. Did people actually show up and watch your events, Matt? Hmm, they did. They did. And it depended wildly on where we were. <laughs> that, that, that's neither here nor there. Because yeah, my point is that you had a more popular sport than Juliet's World Championship sport. There was like massive television coverage. I don't know what you're talking right. about. <laughs> Plus, okay. this is at the Olympics. I want to get back to this because I do want to talk more about your professional athlete career, but I want to go way back in time, Matt Vincent. You know, you obviously are a very successful entrepreneur. You are a very successful athlete, but I want to know where it all started. Did you play sports as a kid? What were your influences? Did you plan to be world champion of a fringe sport? Let's hear where it all began. So for me, you know, everything kind of growing up, playing sports, doing everything, and especially growing up in the South in the 80s, I just don't remember ever there being a choice about playing sports. It was just soccer started and now we're in soccer and then it moved on to baseball season and basketball season and then football season as soon as I was old enough to do that. And I don't think it was probably till late middle school that my opinion of like, hey, I don't like playing baseball was interesting to either of my parents. <laughs> and so by that point, I was able to focus on a thing. Now you had an older brother too. Is he athletic? Yeah, a bit. Andy being the the mutant in the family at 6'5 and a little over 300 pounds by the time he graduated high school, was an All-American high school football player as an offensive lineman, uh, played for A&M, uh, lettered there four years, and also was an All-American and then played a couple years in the NFL for uh, Miami and a year for Detroit. So yeah, pretty moves well and then was a professional strongman. The path was a little, little greased. Yeah, he a uh, professional strongman after that, also did some adventure races with me. And then he uh, more recently became a professional Highland Games guy and did that for 10 years. Stayed in the top 10 in that sport. Were you and Andy the two largest people to ever do adventure races? I think, like our group was, it was rough. It was like us two and the guy I owned the bike shop with. And Bill was definitely like our 135 pound runner. And so at that point, anytime Andy and I were looking at, you know, the trail or where our next checkpoint or anything like that was, if there was an out and back run to the checkpoint, we weren't joining him for it. <laughs> like, we'll, we'll wait here. <laughs> you guys could probably do a really, you know how they do all that towing and adventure racing? Well, though? We you could terrible just, in you the could canoe. You could tow anyone. Andy and I and a third human in a canoe doesn't go great. I, I'm going to go with uh, circus bears. <laughs> on bikes, circus bears, and canoes. It makes For total sure. sense. So just to clarify, though, the the sport you landed on was football? High school was track field, track and field. So I got into to throwing shot put in middle school. Like I wanted to do it from as early as I could. I watched Andy do it in middle school. And that's really the first time, I guess, growing up that I had a chance would have been like seventh grade. I tried to go out in sixth grade and my coach told me, no, no, we have uh, a guy who's in eighth grade right now who throws 40 feet. Why would we bother trying to teach you how to do this? And I was like, oh, okay, six, so next year, I guess. <laughs> and then I came out the next year and threw for seventh and eighth grade and then made my way into high school, learned the discus, and then I uh, was recruited by LSU and did shot discus and hammer, so learned hammer once I got to college. Just side note, how big were you when you left high school since we talked about it? And how big were you when you started high school? Because you're kind of one of my yeah. – Oh, just as an aside, you can answer this question because actually what people say to me is, 
every single time they're like, Matt Vincent is like the largest person I have ever met. And I'm like, you know, Matt actually weighs less than me right now. And he's like five, four and he's like a size three in Lululemon. Yeah. So when I got out of eighth grade, starting like high school football, um, so we kind of had some summer practices and things like that. I remember at some point, one of the coaches relaying it back and was like, you weighed in at 173 pounds from like eighth to ninth grade. And then I graduated high school weighing right about 270. So about 100 pounds in four years. That's normal growth. What they say, look, I, on any of the dietary stuff, right, you're not supposed to lose or gain more than a pound or two a month. So it worked out perfectly. I just did two pounds a month for four years. Easy 100 pounds. Anyone can do it. That's amazing. <laughs> And when I first met Matt, everyone, he just, he was off of a world championship. You've been making content, bringing your friends along for the ride for as long as I've known you physically. And you had a, you had a little road show called the Drift Lifta. Yeah, we did. We did that for five years, man. Yeah, that was a, that was a five year thing of trying to make a thing catch that, uh, I don't know, I would say mixed success. <laughs> but it really, what I, I think what's important to this is, I feel like if you drop into Matt Vincent now, you've got an incredible business line, healthy relationship, your body's changing, you're going, going through all these growth changes, man. You're coming into your body. Um, when I met you, you were maybe over 300 pounds? Uh, probably 280. Okay. Really only 280? Yeah, probably 280 because I was still doing Highland Games. Like the, the biggest I ever got was when I was doing Strongman. I got up to like 318. And I uh, didn't carry it well, if you were wondering. <laughs> uh. Just so you know, <laughs> if I can go back in time, Matt often refers to the things that old Matt used to do as Big Matt. Like Big Matt yeah. would do that. He's a different person. Like that was yeah, his. Yeah, di- it's like it's like a totally different person. It is a different person because right now you sort of transformed yourself, and that's I think the genesis and what's interesting about this conversation we're having is that you've gone from athlete, you know, collegiate athlete, good level, world champion to. You had some changes that came your way relative to your knee, which I think is very interesting, sort of forced retirement out of a sport, and you've completely remade your body and remade the things that you're doing, in, which is bananas. You know, I looked at it a couple different ways, right? Like I was always aware that the Highland Games was going to come to an end. As I hadn't seen anyone do it for the remainder of their life, I had to go ahead and make the agreement that probably at some point I wouldn't be doing that sport anymore. And if that's true then we should maybe think of a, an exit strategy. I knew that for me with the Highland Games, like I loved it. I love competing in it. I love training for it. I love traveling for it. I love the guys I competed with. But I knew that I didn't want to be Matt Vincent Highland Games guy. It was a cool thing I did, but I didn't want it to be who I was. And so whenever I got out of that sport, and like I knew while I was in it that whenever that time's over, I need to change. Like I need to drop weight. There's no reason for me to be this big going forward with regular life or doing any of that. And also, you know, with the message that I try to share with the brand about trying to be better and improvement and all that, like that's the ethos that I live with. And so sitting there and just, I don't know, man, it didn't like, it was one thing to be big and strong, but I wasn't interested in being big and weak and broken. If I'm going to deal with a bit weaker and more broken, I'm going to be aesthetically better looking. (laughs) Like otherwise, you know, the message about what we stand for doesn't translate to people, right? Because you don't walk the walk. What do you weigh now? 235. 
235. You actually weigh less than me. So I, I got to go way back in time because my husband basically skipped like 20 years of your life. He went from like you going to LSU on scholarship to like, what do you weigh now? What do I weigh currently? These are in the past, Juliet. People can't learn from that. Yeah. I was like, these things are in the past. You know, you and I have talked a little bit, just back to your athletic career. First of all, if you could explain for everyone what the Highland Games is, but then secondarily, I think you and I have talked quite a bit about sort of the mental aspect of sport and you and I both sharing a feeling that we were pretty good at that being gamers and that that was never really like a stopping point for us, but is a stopping point for so many athletes. So I would just love to sort of hear your take on that and where you're coming from there. Sure. So I guess we'll, we'll start back on the first part of that and what is the Highland Games. So Scottish Highland Games are considered Scottish heavy athletics, the Scottish Highland Games. They've been doing them in Scotland for a really, really long time. Some of the games like being over in Scotland will be the 700th running of that competition. And even cooler for stuff like that, sometimes it's the original stones or any of this stuff that they've kept around the whole time. So there, there is this kind of cool historical side to it, right? So I really oh, like No one that. steals yeah. those stones yeah. in the field. Yeah, like, I they mean, just that, lay that's there actually and you like, up. you know, that, that is a really cool part of that sport, this deep history. People ask that about the Husafell stone, and I'm like, what the hell are you going to do with it? <laughs> pick it up? You can't pick it up. Like, where are you going to go? It's, it's 407 pounds. It's awful. I had a weird day where like they had used it at a competition in Iceland and I was going back, I was going out to Husafell the next day to go carry it or with a friend. And I'm like, well, do you just want to take it in the car and bring it back with you? I'm like, no, thanks. <laughs> like, I don't want this in my vehicle. What am I going to do with it? Prefer someone else to drive it out there and leave it on the ground. But so for the Highland Games, yeah. So we have nine events that we do. And this worked very, very well for me as an athlete. So we have uh, two stones that we throw just like shot put. We have two weights that we throw and technique wise is somewhere between hammer and discus. But you throw a 56 pound block or a 28 pound block off of a length of chain with a ring on it for distance. Uh, you throw it one armed, spin around twice. And then we have uh, the hammer and instead of the Olympic hammer, which you would turn, the Scottish hammer, your feet are fixed into the ground, and then you orbit the ball around you and then throw it. Can you talk just for a second just how your feet are planted into the ground? Because I find this amazing. Knife boots. <laughs> Custom knife boots. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of silly equipment with the Highland Games too, which was also a lot of fun. And also, what are you wearing while you're competing in the Highland Games? Just You wear yeah. a kilt. People, that was, that's one of the ones that people get more caught up on than I ever expected. I was like, well, it's a uniform. People wear dumb shit for cycling. Like, hey, you wear spandex? Yeah, man, that's part of the gear. What do you want me to do? <laughs> it's not like I'm stoked on wearing a kilt. But also, I'm not mad at it. Like, they're comfortable. A bunch of large men in a kilt is, I mean, it, it's very cute looking. I appreciate the vibe we put out. I do want to Thank jump you. in just for a second because – You've sort of laying down, and if you've ever heard of a caber toss, that's a, that's an event. Yep, that's another game. caber toss is, is another event. So back back to the hammer, yeah. So as you were saying with the blades. So the way this works is, and they're called blades, so you would bolt like a six or seven inch metal blade to the front of your foot or to the shoe. Just check it and don't ask questions. That's it. Just put it in check bag and move on. <laughs> I traveled with a big giant rolling suitcase or a, like rolling hardware box that you would use as a traveling toolbox from like Lowe's. As long as I kept it under 50 pounds, good to go. You're good to go. <laughs> yes, not extra oversized on Southwest. It was great. I don't know how things currently are. But 
Yeah, so you have those blades and those anchor you to the ground. So essentially, once that hammer at 16 or 20 pounds is really going fast and is reaching behind you, because the bigger the orbit is, the faster it's going, the further it'll fly. It's really hard to stay on the ground unless you're anchored in. And then once you're anchored in, you can start actually pulling on the ground with your legs to accelerate the ball instead of thinking about it with your shoulders. Gets weird. But so that's six events now. We have the caber, which is the one everyone knows most, which is the telephone pole that you throw and you throw for accuracy. And so the idea is that you flip it end over end away from you and it lands at 12 o'clock on a clock face from like the direction you were running. So your last three steps set the direction. The caber flips 12 o'clock would be perfect. Anything off of that is slightly less. If it doesn't flip, you'd get a percentage. Um, Yeah, of course, it's a sport. It totally makes sense. It's like gymnastics. There's a little bit of judging in there. A little bit. Yeah. There's, yeah, leaving it up to that guy, especially on percentages. <laughs> yeah. Some guy on the side of you going 75. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> like, great. I'm going to go ahead and turn this so I don't have to deal with that part. I want to just tie up a couple things because you have a lot in there. But the reason I brought up Big Matt is Big Matt, when you are competing your best, you are pretty hard to beat and there's a signature to the style of competition that you bring can you talk about that like when you're feeling good i'm having fun man like i'm not the intense guy that wants to be left alone and sit in the corner and be focused and do my own thing like i'm out having a good time and telling jokes and cutting it up with the other guys i'm competing with and laughing between attempts and typically for me with throwing like i'm looser it would be the same way that I Olympic lifted. Like whenever I did those competitions, I felt the same mentality to what produced results. Powerlifting and strongman took a little bit more of kind of had to get your shift together because it because it's heavy. It requires more effort. Whereas like there's no grinding it out in the Highland Games, right? Like everything moves so fast and it's so light that you have to be loose and explosive, not tight and trying to be strong. Like hydraulic power doesn't work well in the Highland Games. I need I need horsepower and torque. If that makes any more sense, so it's got to be fast and explosive movement to accelerate a light thing. But can I ask something real quick? Yeah, I mean, and I, I guess I was sort of alluding to this before in my earlier question, but I mean, I think it's so interesting that it seems like you figured out a way to compete with joy, and not that you didn't have obviously some level of intensity because you had enough intensity that you to actually win multiple world championships, right? So you were able to like strike this balance between being a serious, legit competitor, but also actually having fun. And I think that's the thing so many people are missing. Right? Yeah, they, they that think to it's business one, or any other yeah, thing. They think it's like one or the other, right? Like they think unless I'm like perfectly intense and serious all the time and not having any fun, there's no way I could be the best. Well, to me, a lot of that, right, is people getting caught up on someone else's interpretation of how you compete. Like someone else being able to say like, well, they're not very intense. They must not be taking this serious. And like, yeah, that's not the case. I have the ability to turn it on and turn it off. That's how I can stay out here and do this for eight hours. You can't just stay nutted up and locked in for eight hours. You just can't hold that line. And so I got to be able to work on spikes. And so if I've got 27 relative attempts that I'm going to take that day of nine events, three throws each, I need to be really focused for 27 things. That's it. Like what happens between those doesn't matter. That's a lot. It's a lot, but you can't hold it. You, you know what I mean. And back to the being a gamer, like I, I was having fun. Yeah, that, that really is, I think, a hallmark between 
you and Juliet is that you guys, it looks effortless from the outside. And yet, you know, I've seen Juliet do things in a moment when it pressures on, like Juliet is one of the biggest gamers I've ever met, you know, like PR, Oh, 60 minutes is at the gym. Oh, let me just PR on my clean lifetime PR because obviously you need three cameras in 60 minutes in order to have the right motivation to have a PR, <laughs> right? That, that's that sort of thing. You know, you have done an amazing job transferring that into your current state, whether you're, we're talking about your business and creating content. But more importantly, one of the things that's so amazing about it, even with Drifter Lifter, Drifter Lifter, is that you brought everyone along for the ride. And I feel like that was w- watching you compete, because I knew you during those times, that joy that you felt and the looseness wasn't just aimed at you. It was aimed at if we all are sort of not necessarily not taking ourselves seriously, but playing with joy, we actually can go further. I feel like this is a huge, I mean, every, all these entrepreneur podcasts, like what's your daily ritual? How do you hack and, and which, how are you optimizing? And you really have created a, a sustainable process that is always party. It's always party, man. And the always party sign like, is it's about performing when it counts. And that's what it's about. And I wonder that with you too, Juliet, or, or and you too, Kelly, because I mean, as gamers, right? Like the stuff that I'm confident in now is I'm okay if I'm not totally prepared for a thing. I'll be fine. I can get it done. I know that I can make it happen whenever the time comes. And like, that's a cool confidence to go forward with in life because I've, I've done enough presentations as an outside sales rep. I've competed enough times where it's final throw. This is that bottom of the ninth moment. And more times than not for me, I've performed well, especially depending on how you want to define well, right? If not failing and not choking and, and screwing it up is performing well, then then you can get pretty good at that. It's not always a hit it out of the park, but you got to at least know that you can get your job done when that time comes. Like maybe you're not a home run in the bottom of the ninth, but I mean, know that you can get the base hit. And like, know that you've got that confidence in yourself for work, for life, for your relationship, that it doesn't all have to be work if you know that you can flip that switch and make progress and be on point and be smart and be present when it counts. The river running is interesting because you know, you've had some success in that, Juliet, in quotation marks. But even if you just go out and run a hard river with your friends, you can't be gripped all day. It doesn't work. You paddle like ass. It's not fun. You don't enjoy it. There are no goofy moments. You're going to have to eat lunch at some point, and you can't eat lunch in silence. It's a really long day where you have to get up and focus and get your shit together and then wind down, run the sections between the big stuff. I mean, that risk-taking, you know, practice over and over again, I think, you know, I see you, Juliet, be able to sort of get in and out of flow or in and out of intensity very quickly. And I think it's also important, the better you are as an athlete and the further that you develop as a business owner is realizing what level of intensity each problem is requiring of you. Like the, you got to have more than one gear. You know, um, not not to change the subject, but one thing I really wanted to talk to you about, and this could just be the like, let's name all the things Matt and Juliet have in common podcast. But another big one I think we share, and I think it's a big one, is that, you know, after college, you took an outside sales job, which you can talk about. But then while you were doing that job, you became an entrepreneur and had kind of two jobs for a while. And three then, jobs, athlete. Three jobs, outside athlete. Sales, yeah. And um, started the business. And at some point you, you know, you felt that you had the enough humans and support and 
you know, whatever you needed from a financial standpoint to be able to sort of jettison your day job and actually do hate brand goods full time. So, well, the day job decided to quit giving me a paycheck. Well, yeah, I mean, I know that wasn't like a, a conscious decision, but I think you would have come to that. Of course, I would have got there. You would have gotten there, just maybe not right in that moment. But, you know, I don't know, talk to us a little bit about what that transition is like from like normal job to entrepreneurship and, you know, what that was like for you and what your motivation was. I think a lot of people, people want to know this because I think people feel like they wish they could start their own business and work for themselves and have sort of their autonomy and time back. But the leap is big. Even Juliet, just for context, really struggled internally for a minute to leave her law profession, which she had seriously invested in, was quite competent on her way to being a partner. And suddenly you were like, no, I'm going to go be the CEO of a stretching company. Well, that's tricky, right? Because there's that, well, there's that fallacy of sunk costs that we all deal with, right? That like, oh man, I've already put 10 years into this industry. I can't just start over. Why the fuck you can? You can start over. <laughs> I can just hit the, hit, the, hit the button and reset. Did you get there overnight? I mean, did you have no, any no, doubts? I also learned a few things from previous mistakes, right? From being an entrepreneur. So I did the bike shop thing immediately coming out of out of college and I failed at that. So that was a brick and mortar. We opened from jump. Like I established contacts with vendors. I built everything with getting bikes into our shop from scratch. So I learned a ton from it. My execution was really poor. And I just didn't have the knowledge. I didn't have the knowledge of how to make a struggling business succeed and have the brick and mortar, those type of things. So I didn't have any of that knowledge. I got out of that and did two jobs I didn't care for, including back working at the strip club, bouncing and DJing at night. And then that got me into working in the petrochemical field, not doing outside sales. So my first job in the petrochemical field was a hand. Like I was climbing towers and doing radioactive scans on things and trying to read data and deliver it to clients. And then the change is why, why when I was working for a company doing that, doing just climbing towers, getting paid, getting my commission, right? Why did I decide, well, if no one's doing sales for us, someone should. Like that's the mental switch that people have or don't have. Like I took on extra work because it would get us more work as a company which in turn pays me more money. So it's, I started cold calling a blank list of clients every day for eight hours. And by the time, like, I mean, somebody would answer every 10 phone calls. You don't even remember who you tried to call. And so you're like, Hey, how are you? <laughs> and try to get context clues together from, <laughs> from what they've said to schedule a meeting and do something to go forward. But cold calling is rough. And then you do that for a few years and then taking customers to lunch. And then another company who I'd made contact with wanted me just to do the sales thing for them. And I didn't have to climb towers anymore. And so it slowly progressed on like that. You had to do a bit of driving though. A little bit of driving. Had to do a lot of driving. Yeah, about 75,000 miles a year is what I averaged for quite some time. Didn't do the best things for my body, but here, here we are. Uh What's, I, feel, I feel like there's a phrase here, like fast carbs and lean protein. Is that right? Fast carbs and lean protein. They're key. They're key for success when you're on the road. And you stop at a Raising Cane's chicken <laughs> fingers, you get seven chicken fingers and some fries and a three liter of Dr. Pepper. And it's a best combination, essentially, for building your bench press, I was taught during my powerlifting years. <laughs> Whatever is left in that cup is standing between okay, okay. you and your dreams. So you're in this outside sales job and competing as a Highland Games athlete, and you decide to start Hate Brand Goods. I think you were also, or did you start with Drift to Lifta first? So I decided to write a book in 20, 
11. It's called a training lab. And so it was essentially my breakdown of how you would approach a full year of training for the Highland Games. Took a lot of what I'd liked from strongman and powerlifting and then what I'd learned from actually competing in track and field in college. And because it's such a different sport, there wasn't really anything out there for athletes in that arena. And why it's different than the other strength sports is like I would compete 22 or 23 times a year. So you can't peak for 23 games. You have to decide as an athlete, these three matter. And then you train around those and you build your whole season so that I can, you know, I don't care that I'm throwing, I don't want to throw PRs in May. I want to throw PRs at the world championships in August. And so you build your season and your training and strength training program around that. During writing of that book, one of the philosophies I talked about was something my brother and I had discussed called the hate. And it was something that we had always seen in athletes we'd admired. You know, these guys who are at the top and still doing the gnarly work to try to get better because it matters to them, not because they have something to prove, not because of expectations or any of this own thing, but that own athletes hunt for how good can I be? And that way, at least I know when the time's up, I didn't leave anything there. Like I don't, there's, I don't have any of that about Highland Games about like, oh, if I could have won another one or if I could have done this, like, nah. I gave it hell for the whole time that I was in it. This is the best I could have ever been at it. I'm very honest about that with myself. Anything extra, I didn't clearly want to do. So here's where we ended up. (laughs) And I'm stoked on that. And so I don't have any weird feelings going forward. Also, I found out how far I throw all those things. I'll never throw those things further again. So I don't need to keep chipping away at a goal I've already accomplished. That didn't make any sense to me. Once it was over. And let me frame, let me frame this. I've been in Matt's house. There, I was just going to say that there is not a single caber stone knife shoe in your whole house. Like I, if I didn't know, I'd be like, well, this is just a big jacked runner guy. Cause that's what you do now. There's no, not a single photo of you throwing. It's, it's like you have this, like you, do you have shame, Matt? Do you have Highland shame? No, it was a good memory, man. You have to remember every so often it appears on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Every it, once in a while it's cool for Oh, yeah. That's remind people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like not there, you know. It's it, every so often you don't, it you don't appears. Have, I don't think you have any – we have one boating picture of you in the house no, maybe. No, yeah. Well, that, yeah. That was a thing we did. It's not who we are. No, that's exactly it, right? Like I'm very proud of it. But I also – I could see that trap with other athletes of like, oh, man, you got to be careful. Because, I mean, so so let's say that that was the gimmick I leaned into for everything that I tried to build my business around was this Highland Games thing. Well, it's now 2021 and by 2026, which will be here instantly in four years, I will have not competed for a decade. That seems like a real weird thing to be yelling at at 43 of like, remember when I did that thing you guys didn't care about then? Well, I'm going to keep talking about it. Like, no, man, you better figure out the new gimmick figure out whatever the next the next way to translate that thing is. I mean, you still need that credibility, but that's that's all it is. Like at this point for me is like, man, I did a thing. So you kind of alluded to sort of the ethos a little bit that, you know, you and Andy sort of created around this idea of hate. But could you give maybe just me like the elevator speech about what it means. And let me tell you the backstory. You know, basically our entire family, including me, is wearing hate brand good stuff basically 24 hours a day. Caroline and, we, and Matt are wearing the same they, shirt. Yeah, today. you and Caroline are wearing the same outfit today. And 
people do ask me, and I think I need some training on my elevator speech to explain what it is because I think people are like, what is this hate brain goods? And I was like, well, it's not. And I'm always like, well, it's not hate like in a bad way. In fact, it's the opposite of hate. It's about joy and partying. And and so I guess I'd love to hear, you know, like what's your elevator speech on what the brand hate brand goods means? The biggest thing about the hate, right, is that you're not willing to tolerate your own shit, your own, it's been good enough. I deserve the day off. Like, oh, we deserve snacks. Like any of that deserve entitlement, any of that. Like no one owes you anything, man. It's being willing to hate yourself to do what it takes for you to get where you want to go. Because if you don't care, no one else is going to care for it more than you. Like that's one of those things I never understand. Like if you're not willing to want your success more than someone else does for you, like what are you doing? And like, there's a lot of suffering that comes through that, like talking about making the shift to entrepreneurship or any of those type of things, because they want that freedom of life that you're talking about. Because look, it's real cool to look at year seven in, but good luck because the first four years are ugly. Their first four years are not taking a paycheck, constantly trying to figure out systems and how to put things in place and why your business doesn't operate. How do we get paid? How do we pay taxes? And then the better you get at that, how do you really pay taxes? How do you find an accountant and find all these people to take care of the jobs? Like, I'm seven years in and it feels like year one. And so anyone who looks at the, oh, it must be nice to own your own business thing. Sure, man, but get ready for the baptism by fire. You don't get both. Yeah, you know, we've had a couple of people in, in more recent years be like, wow, you guys are like really hot right now. What's it like? Overnight success. Yeah, and, and we're like, new stretching yeah, 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 best new stretching artist. And we're like, wow, I mean, it's been like digging a ditch for 15 years. But, you know, thanks for letting us know we're hot right now. That's all it ever feels like, right? Yeah. It's it's digging a ditch. That's what the hate's about. The hate hate's about not tolerating that good enough. That if you want it, you go get it. Juliet will talk to a lot of college seniors who are about to transition to the workplace, who are athletes, these Division One schools. And they all seem to think they are they don't have any skills. And Juliet has to sort of remind them, actually, you guys are the most employable people ever. You know how to be on a team. You know how to show up. You know how to work when you don't want to work. You know how to, you know, do the thing, go to bed early, delay gratification. Right? You know, they should, they should realize that that's the skill set they're building. Right. But I don't know what coaches talk about at this point. I know what my experience was as a collegiate athlete at that time, but I don't know what the university system feels like anymore. That's right. You know, this is a pet peeve I have, or not even a pet peeve, but I think, let me just say this. If I had two candidates that I was going to hire, like young people, like 22-year-olds, and one of them had been like an entrepreneur, and one of them had like worked at a pizza joint, chances are I would hire the kid that's worked at the pizza joint. Because I think that there- Entrepreneur is not the right word. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's like we do, we have sort of fetish, fetishized, I can't say that word, entrepreneurship. But, you know, I have to think a lot of the skills that have translated for you and most of us come in part from just doing whatever job that is. I mean, in your case, it was having a failing bike company or God knows whatever jobs you did in college or otherwise, where you have to show up and yeah, you've got to show up and answer to someone. I, I learned from the bike shop thing. And the important thing I learned was I didn't want to work for someone else. All right, let's zoom out again and figure out. And also it took me 10 plus years to reload and try again from the bike shop failing a decade. I can really relate to that. You know, I've sort of hinted before, but about Big Matt, but the flip side of Big Matt is Puka Shell Kell. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he was truly wearing a Puka Shell when I met him. It wasn't a Puka Shell per se, it was, a, it was an allegorical, but it may have been it was, like, it was an actual. And, and you were wearing clogs. 
Oh, you should just get one puka shell tattooed by your ankle. I just, I'm sorry. I have to go farther before Kelly makes his point and just sort of paint the picture. I mean, when I met Kelly, he weighed 179. No. He claims it was like 183, but whatever. It was 179. 187. He had dyed his hair white blonde and he was wearing clogs and a puka shell necklace. I'm just, you know, just saying. Oh, and I thought you were totally hot. Jorts? No, but the jorts are a new thing. And I have to say, I really dig them. Yeah, you should. I didn't have an ass to, to support the jorts before. I mean, Julie used to call my legs the birds. Look, jorts are important. You can't do saggy jorts, though. No. No, they need to be butt tight. No, no, no. They need to literally be butt tight. Yeah, yeah. Five to six inch inseam tops. You need to see a little bit of VMO out of the bottom at all times. <laughs> Carrying these quads in a kayak does me no favors. Just FYI, both of <laughs> no, you. No, it does not. Except does I don't not. need any additional padding. I actually have to take all the padding out of a kayak. I if you really cared about training for kayaking, you'd FDR those legs immediately. <laughs> uh, carrying around your quads doesn't help you a lot in most of the stuff we do these days, baby. Except jorts. Except they're, for jorts. jorts. Yeah, they do but, look good in jorts. Yeah, except walking around and establishing dominance against the rest of the men we see. <laughs> Don't pretend we're making primates. Mixing <laughs> a dominant species, mixing inferior species in a pot. That's, That's right. called making chili. So um, you know, the reason I mentioned the Big Matt Pukashell is those – I don't think you people appreciate that you can't get to where you are today without just the practice and the failing and the risk-taking. There's a lot of risks for you to you – know, you ended up throwing as well as you could train. And you had to peak that day. And there's a million things that have to go right on a competition day for that moment to happen. And I feel like the better prepared you are and the sort of just more practice you get, the more likely you are to have that success. You know, obviously you're super talented. And, you know, one of the things that Juliet and I continue to sort of, you know, stumble and rediscover is, you know, when we were river guides, paddling, taking risk, being in charge of people that really set us up for feeling uncomfortable about the outcomes. Because I think a lot of people would love to jump into entrepreneurship, but they're not that familiar with failure because they really haven't had, like haven't fallen on their face many times, especially if you work for someone else, right? Where you get a check to sort of, I mean, you maybe get a bad review, but you're, it's really hard to get fired. You really have to be messing up. And yet as an athlete, you risk so much. And I don't just mean like, Physically, I mean, like psychoemotionally, like you show up and it was a terrible event, and you you have to be able to put that together over and over again, and that's the very much the same lift, the iterative, quick fail, risk taking in order to have a have a successful business. Yeah, I, I think that side of it. I think it's a learned skill. I think that's one of those things that gets forgot about by a lot of athletes because the training gets such a focus as it's the majority of time. Luckily for me, coming from the track and field background, right? Like we compete a lot as track and field athletes. So our season starts for indoors in January and we're done in June. So that's every weekend for six months. Not all those track meets are terribly important. Some are practice, which you need to get better at competing. It's better at knowing the routine of here's how we show up to the track. We're going to get some warm up throws. There are some unknowns that are going to come. Don't worry about those because they're unknown every week, just like they are for all the other people. And then you focus on the stuff that you can control. And so you do the best you can to stack the cards in your favor for success on that day. And that comes from having experience doing it. You don't develop a really good competition day strategy without competing. I got to try how to compete 20 plus times a year for the entire time I competed in my sport. Like that's different than powerlifting or something else where you get on the stage to compete three times a year. I'm doing it a lot, and I got really good at competing and being when it counts. 
And that skill has transferred over to relationships, life, right? Like when, when stuff gets tough or uncomfortable, I'm happy. I'm good there. Or, you know, business stuff. Like if I don't have that kind of uncomfortable feeling like everything's on fire, I realize no one's on the gas. We're coasting. And I'm no longer interested in staying in that room. I want to be on the gas and I want to be uncomfortable. I'm going to take this conversation on a real left turn here, Matt. All right. We can't talk about aliens. Because, you know, a lot of people would sort of, there are a lot of things we have in common as the, the three of us that are sort of obvious to thanks anyone. For, thanks for including me now. You're finally in the group. But one thing that nobody would ever necessarily know is one of the things we bonded over so intensely when we first met is our mutual love of mid-century modern architecture and design. And fake joints. And fake joints. Oh, sorry, also fake joints. I don't know. Tell me a little bit about, because you obviously are someone who cares about design and functional spaces and being in places that feel good details. Matt, yeah, so Matt has of all the people in my life, Matt is top 3 impeccable taste. Yeah, I agree. Oh, man. That's probably my favorite compliment that I've ever been given. I wanted that's so much cooler to me than 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 anything on top of the sports stuff. It's all great and fine. Taste is different. Where does that come from? Where does that come from, Matt? I mean, you're like this, you know, uh, track and field Louisiana, kid from Baton obviously. Rouge. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you have this modern's it, way popular in Louisiana. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I got to know. I have to understand what, what the deal is because it's, it's a real moment for us. I really wonder that, like why, why my interest leaned toward the things that it did, design aesthetic, those type of things. I knew that I had an interest in back, like in art and, and stuff like that growing up for a long time. And then I found interest in album covers and graphic art and those type of things. And now looking back at stuff, like there's kind of an interesting pathway that I wasn't paying enough attention to over like what stuff I was doing as hobbies. One of which, uh, when I had the bike shop, one of the things I liked doing most with the bike shop was designing shirts. And then I tour managed for a friend's band. Matt just sent me some pictures of the first Hate Brands logo ever. Like scratched. Yeah, like sketched out in my notebook, yeah. And a couple iterations. I mean, what I'm saying is that this is also a skill that you've practiced and practiced and sort of it, you're in constant feedback loop. In fact, I visited your gym. We came back and I was like, I knocked something off right away. I was like, we, we need to get this neon sign stat. Yeah, um, like I think it matters that you create a vibe, right? Like especially if you're lucky enough to – I get to build your own universe, right? That I'm not just buying things to get the job done, that I get to buy the things I want. And if I'm going to buy the things I want, then those things need to matter and have a reason for why I think they're cool. And that's actually really consistent with your whole sort of competition worldview is that you built a universe that you wanted to train in, in which you wanted to compete where you can control. And I would say, I have to really be honest that your home design, gym design, aesthetic design is really, and even just the people that you curate and cultivate and are friends with, it's the same thing. You've, you've just done a, a different iterative world building that you did as an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. I've been lucky enough that one of the skills I, I tend to have is that people like my company. So that that's a, a good one. I've said it a lot, like as far as building to get the right people around you or that network or any of that, because I do think that really, really matters. For me, it's, I like being the least successful of my group of friends. So that makes me happy. <laughs> like uh, that means chances are only going up for me. I'm not dragging everyone down. Uh, whereas if you're the most successful group in your group of friends, probably they need to go. You should probably find some other people to be around, to be inspired by, to be, you know, fired up by people that are just driving forward as hard as you are that 
want to help help success that are stoked on your success and not trying to grab a hold of yours or mad at it. And having that focus of of putting the details in has always mattered to me. Like I've never wanted it's never been the turn on for me to have like the big 6,000 square foot giant 10,000 square foot mansion and 20 cars. What I want is 2,500 feet of perfection. I want everything in there to be made for, to be purchased for a decision. I want everything to have a couple layers of like, oh, that's cool. And then you get closer and realize, oh, that's cool. For example, my desk. I really like my desk. It's a simple desk. A couple things that add to it. It's electric and adjustable. Awesome. That's not a normal thing people have for a big, giant, six and a half foot long desk. Then you look at it again, and you're like, wait, what's the top? It's a hundred year old bowling alley lane. Like there's, there's things that matter. And so I built this because I found a guy selling bowling alley lanes. And then I found legs from another place and I put it all together to be my desk. This is what I like. You know, I didn't have it refinished and sanded perfectly because I want the wear and tear that comes from it being a hundred year old bowling alley. And I'm going to continue to beat it up. Do you think people just don't know what they like or maybe do you think they just, my mom's a perfect example of this where she knows what she doesn't like. And then the other side of that, everything's basically pretty good, but nothing's incredible. I know the stuff for me that only falls into incredible. And I'm not interested in much compromise on the other side of incredible. Like I don't want good enough. I've done good enough. I've done that in the past and I don't want it anymore. Speaking of incredible, I would venture to say that the growth that Hate Brand Goods has had over the past few years has been incredible. And amazing. And we, as your friends, are so excited to just watch you continue to grow that business and be so successful. What are you guys thinking about? What What's next? What are you looking forward to? What are you working on? What's going on right now? We're at a point right now where I feel really confident and comfortable in my ability to create stuff we're putting out. I can do it. I'm taking on that work for a couple of other people's brands because I want to see what I can do creatively. Can I think of ideas fast enough, basically, is what I want to find out where the rev limiter is on that dumb machine. And so now, as the business is growing and I'm starting to get real help from my team with Brant and Andy and the other media guys and then the guys that we have not in-house. We've got an editor in Australia, Aaron. We've got a podcast editor in London. Various people like that. So now it's trying to figure out that system. Like we had a big meeting today and I essentially got to plan out for the first time since I've had our business. I know in general, what everything's getting made for the rest of the year. Now, I may not have finished design files for December yet, but I know what December's vibe is. And that's a starting point. At least that's setting the compass, right? Because you got to be able to at least pick direction. So now, kind of for the first time this year now that I'm doing it, I feel like a CEO. It's the first time that we've had like in the process of like, okay, we're serious now. We're trying to run a business. And I've got to make CEO decisions of delegating work and trying to keep people motivated and bought into the company we're running. Like, that's my job now. My job is to be the face, be content, come up with the direction, and then make sure my team can implement that direction the best way possible instead of me just doing everything moderately poorly at the limit of my abilities. You know, one thing I think that maybe people don't really fully appreciate is because you are a lifestyle brand, how much content 
you are creating on a daily, monthly, weekly, yearly basis to be able to support what you're doing? One of these days it's going to catch. I just want to make sure there's no illusion that it's like, let's create a Shopify store that looks real nice and press play and I'm going to sell some Can't stuff. Right? Like, like that anymore. Now with that, with that, it did start there. Right. Like it did realistically start there, right? Like I came up with a t-shirt design. I had some stuff in place as far as like how to print it and where it was going to ship from, but it's still doing one shirt. And so we did a pre-order and sold, I don't know, a hundred over the course of a week. And then essentially with apparel kind of, you're at a 50% margin. So then we take all the profit and now we have 200 shirts on the shelf and those can sell. And then when I realized those quit selling, we probably should come up with another design. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of been the pace we've run since then is we only have two types of customers, right? For me, you guys have a consumable thing that there's always new information for people to keep buying. I'm selling things. And so if I only have returning and new customers, new customers will buy whatever's new, but I've still got to feed the people that have been on board and they're not buying the same shirt again. So I got to be able, the more that I keep putting out new stuff, it feeds both of those audiences better. Instead of like, oh, we made that great design in 2018, we'll keep running it. No, I mean, I think we do really relate to that, though. I mean, even though you're selling things and we're selling content, I mean, we're in the same boat, right? Like we have all these, right? I mean, and I think that's actually really what trips up a lot of people in sort of our our line of work in the content side is they're just like, let me just drop in this content and press play and then go take a nap. And, you know, we're in the same boat as you where it's just constant. No, you've got to constantly be updating, updating, adding new, making sure that you're... And the monster's hungrier. It isn't like the same workload that was working a year ago works anymore because now there's different fronts because I have to produce... Like, sorry, I don't have to produce a podcast. I get to do a show that also helps build other business and drive things in a different direction for myself and the brand. Luckily, the podcast, because it's sharing more of my mentality, more conversations I want to have, it builds more to the identity that people want to buy into of hate brand or Matt Vincent. And then I also have a place to sell advertising. But again, whereas hate brand is something we're putting out two drops a week now, it's a lot of things. (laughs) It's a lot of things to get made and a lot of new designs and new ideas and new colorways and things like that. Whereas, and then it's one or two podcasts a week, not to mention continuing to be a guest on other people's things because that's part of it. And you guys know all this. Did you always feel like Cape Brand was a sure thing? No. I don't know when, probably this year. And this year, the sure thingness felt enough of like, we got a thing. That's it. Like we, we have figured out a little bit of how to catch fire. How do we just keep breathing oxygen into it now? Let me ask you this. I don't want to go super deep into this because we've just been chit-chatting. We can keep chit-chatting. This is, these are the same conversations we have when we're all in person. You and Juliet and I... Julia alluded to that we're all pseudo-cyborg. Some of us are more cyborg than the rest, Juliet. She's a double cyborg. I'll I'll catch a hip at some point. You will, you will. You'll you'll be right behind me, Matt. But people don't know, you had your knee replaced. And to my understanding, you're the youngest athlete I've ever run into who had a total knee resurfacing. I mean, I don't know if I have a record, but I I don't know anyone younger. I'm going to go with number one. Yes. You're the record, until, until proven otherwise. And with someone who actually has to use their leg, gets to use their leg. You were you went through a pretty gnarly bout of a lot of surgery with this knee. This knee was starting to give you grief. You didn't have an ACL. You tore it in high school or tore it in college. Re tore it. A lot of surgeries. 
lo and behold, you end up cruising towards a knee replacement after a lot of other surgeries trying to avoid that. Can you just talk about how easy that was in your life at that moment? Because, you know, so many people can relate. They have a physical identity and your physical identity, one had changed because you weren't competing anymore at that level. But two, your physical identity was squashed because you couldn't actually even do the things you needed to do because of the chronic pain and persistent pain. So it was a bit of a double-edged sword. Like I, I now, with having some distance between it and perspective, there was a lot of really good that came to me that only would have come from that route. But, you know, going back and getting hurt the hindsight is if I just would have retired in 2016 and lost weight, like I would be in better physical shape than I am now than, than trying to do the surgeries. The surgeries are really what put me in a bad place, but they're elective and that's the route that I thought was the smartest decision to go down. So I made the best decision I could at the time. I don't have any weird feelings about that. Like also what good are weird feelings about that? Here we are. And going through that, like because it switched to me so hard to chronic pain, the interest I had about getting back to my sport took such a seat, like a back seat to it that that never was the priority again. Because like, what do you mean? We're going to throw, like anytime someone would ask me like, well, when are, we, are you going to throw again? I'm like, yo, I can't walk up and down stairs. Like we have some other things to probably accomplish first. Right. Until I can run, jump and sprint without ever having to think about what direction or any of those type of things, we're not ready. So a couple things I want people to know right now, you're training up, studying up to run a, a little longer than a half. Yeah, uh, 18 miles or a 30K in Bryce Canyon in 27 days. Last time I was in the desert with you, walking was a little bit tough. It was tricky. Now you're, now you're going back to the desert. Back to the desert. Do you feel like that a lot of people have a hard time ending a, a career transitioning? In retrospect, was this knee injury surgery, did that make it easier to be like, well, I have to do this now. That's what this does now. Yes. It totally took that choice from me of getting back to my sport. Like it just wasn't ever going to happen again. And so let's move on. Let's figure out the next thing instead of sitting here dwelling. I don't, that's never been a, a thing I understood. I wasn't interested in holding on to it the same way that I didn't go to college and try to talk to people about how good I played football. Like, you know, there's a place that good football players go to after high school, right? It's called college. They play it there. And so if you weren't asked to go, guess what? You weren't a good high school football player. That's math of it. And great high school football players, guess where they go? It's called the NFL. <laughs> Were you not invited? You weren't a great high school football player. You know, Kelly and I love to have something to either look forward to or train for. Is that for you part of why you're doing? Got to have a carrot to chase. Yeah, got to have a carrot to chase. I mean, is that sure. why you're doing this Bryce Canyon thing? It was easy enough, right? It was an easy enough thing that was going to be a fun experience for me. The low, I mean, the bar of where I'm setting success versus failure of that is pretty low. And I think that really matters a lot too with going forward as an athlete mentality wise. Cause like, I'm never going to be best in the world at a second thing, not on a bad knee, not on a bad hip, at least not something athletically, right? Like, who knows what the rest of life brings up, but chances are I'm not going to find another active strength sport on a fake knee getting older. So, Sick. I found mine. I got to do it. It was awesome. And so it just never made sense to me why I would keep going down a path I've already been down. Like I'm an experienced nerd. And so like, that's what I want to do is I want to find out more of what I'm capable of. What, what other lessons are there to learn? Like if I got so much benefit in my life 
from that time that I spent competing in the Highland Games, from learning how to prepare, learning how to show up when it matters, learning how to eat properly for a sport, learning how to recover on shut short terms because I had five games in a row plus travel to each one. I've also, in that time that I competed 24 times a year, I've never competed and slept in my own bed the night before. So there's tons of travel mixed in with that, of course, and still having a real job from until 2017 for the entire time I competed in that sport. So learning all those things was great. So why wouldn't there be other things to learn from other sports? And so for running, one of the things I was really curious about learning from that going forward was, man, the, the ability to tell yourself to keep going. Like that's, that's something I've never had to do because I've never done endurance. Like everything for my sports done in two seconds, powerlifting or any of those things. Like the focus is very, very short. I'm just going to jump in and call horse crap because you, <laughs> some people are gifted on one end of the spectrum. Like, oh, Matt can, you know, clean 400 pounds and has been Olympic lifting his whole life and benches five. And like, you're pretty strong. One of my strong friends, you have wrists that are like my thighs. And then conversely... <laughs> I have been on a bunch of bike rides with you and it turns out you're a very gifted aerobic athlete, which is sort of falls into the course. I'm like, Oh yeah, I forget Matt's a mutant. Even though he's one of my best friends is a mutant. Yeah. So I think it's a little disingenuous to say, but what I can say is I'm not sure you've ever run this much ever since high school football. That's gotta be true. I've never run this much. I didn't run this much in high school football. I just was playing football, right? There's a difference in, in that engine. Like I still couldn't go run a 5K when I was in high school. But you on a bike, you're a savage. But I didn't start riding until college. And then like I got lucky enough that through recovery and rehab for me, because I always liked cycling, it was one of the things that I could do that I could train hard on that didn't hurt the system in a bad way, right? Like cycling at least gave me, because I like cycling, I like the gear aspect of it. I like the nerding side of getting new components and clothing and all of that, that I remember being in the desert and like, we had a couple talks during that ride. Cause what, I was on six months of a new knee at that point. And you had some, you're exactly where I am right now. Right. And you had some concerns about me, like how hard I was going out every day. You're like, Hey man, like careful. And the only thing I said back to you was it's the first time in three years that my body feels tired the way it's supposed to. Like my legs burn the way they're supposed to not searing joint pain that makes me want to kill everyone. And so because I could find that again, which it was the first time in three years that I could push that I could actually hit the gas pedal to be like, and there's the red line. That's a thing we haven't felt in a long time. And so finding those edges of, of your ability, I think matter. And cycling was one that I could do coming out of knee surgery that I could still pour the coals to and not have any risk. Like I couldn't squat anymore, right? I'm never going to find that feeling squatting again. In my my own recovery, Julia has been saying, hey, you need to walk more, you need to walk more, you need to walk more. And so I actually came back after seeing you and started walking a lot more, steep hills. Lisa and I are actually, we have a one they're, hour. They're in a competition We have right a one now. hour loop in our neighborhood. This is Lisa, our producer. And she was like, yeah, you can do that loop in under an hour. I was like, bull crap. And she was like, oh, look. And she pulled up a 101. And I was like, oh, it's not a 101. That's not sub. And she was like, well, I went to my car and I was like, sorry, Strava doesn't lie. And yes, then. I'm sorry. I have to just fully cut Kelly off right now, Matt. Kelly refuses to track anything he does on any wearable or phone or otherwise. And now he is trying to enter into a competition with Lisa with no data of any kind because he's she too did. cool. To I went, use hang on a second. I went 56 minutes. 
And then Lisa. Allegedly. And then Lisa. There's there's Lisa, no way that's to true. Uh, confirm that. And then Lisa just threw down 53 minutes. Well, hers is real. And so I'm like, I don't know if I can walk. Well, why don't you just say you did it in, two, in 52? Because, I mean, we may as well make up numbers if you don't have data. <laughs> I actually exactly. stayed at 52 today. It's really oh, funny. Okay. How much um, did you run? My, my point is this morning I went and ran hill repeats because my Matt, my friend Matt Vincent is running again. And I was like, it's time to start running again. I'm springy enough. I need to start introducing this. So, Dude, it doesn't have to be fast, right? It's quicker than a walk. And like, let me explain running for those listening, what I'm doing. The 18-mile trail run I've got. here. Here's where I set my line of expectations for I'm going to do a thing that I've never done before. Here's how I manage it. And this is coming from the same guy who's a lunatic to become a world champion in things. My intentions are I want to be in good enough shape that when I go do that 30K, I can enjoy being in Bryce Canyon for 18 miles. Not I'm on some death march for seven hours trying to survive. So... 18 miles divided by my time allotted to do the thing is like seven hours. So seven hours, it comes down to 2.67 miles an hour is what I need to average. Anything faster than that, success. <laughs> that's that's where I'm at. So, you use um, the whole time. You got to use the whole time. You know what this makes me think of, Matt? And we might've mentioned this to you once before, but we worked with this great consultant and we got this phrase from him that we use literally all the time, all of us in the ready state in any like business interaction we have. Um, and he taught us, his name's Bill DeWitt, and he taught us to say, what does success look like to you? And you have no idea how relevant that question is. But I mean, that question is exactly what I think of because what success is to you is enjoying your time in Bryce Canyon and finishing in under the cutoff, right? It's not winning the world championship of running through the desert of Bryce Canyon, right? And But that question has been so important for us from a business standpoint, a personal standpoint, like it's our favorite question. Yeah, because I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm going to move as fast as I can. Of course. Because that's already there. I don't have to decide that. Yeah, you don't part. have to conjure no, that I'm up a crazy from somewhere. Person. That'll just take place. But the difference in having that expectation versus intention of what I want that event to be for me changes whether the line of success and failure is, right? But it doesn't change my outcome. My outcome is going to come from I'm going to do as good as I can do. And because I'm a lunatic who's competed a bunch of times, I trust whatever outcome comes from that day, I did it as good as I could. If I needed to walk, I don't have anything to prove to you. I probably needed to walk. If I like, so, so being able to look at it that way changes that. Like, let's I finish it in five hours dead, which would be a pretty killer time for me. If I'm looking at it based on how I'm currently running, plus the elevation. If I look at it for five hours dead and my goal was to finish it in five hours, then it's like, uh, cool, we, we did it. But if my goal is to enjoy the thing and I finish it in five hours, it's like, holy cow, look at this. I did it in five hours. Like that makes five hours really cool. Whereas if I set the expectation of five hours and I barely achieve it, I feel differently about the same outcome. So having my intention be on enjoying the day, that allows my chance of success and how it makes me feel after the event and how I use it to build forward much better than I didn't hit my number. I think you can apply that to just a whole lot of parts of your life. So I have this one, as, as we get towards the end of our conversation, you may not remember this, but I remember this so distinctly. And it was like my first ever, like, check the box. I love this guy, Matt Vincent. You came out to San Francisco to interview us. And I think you were among the first people to be like, hey, these Kelly and Juliet people are a partnership. I'm going to interview both of them. 
Yeah, because I wanted to talk about, look, look the stretching stuff's great, but I was more interested in the stand-up desk thing. Yeah, yeah. So, but, you know, I have to say that was, like, pretty cool, Matt, and pretty unusual, especially at that time, because it's hard for me to talk about this because I, I don't want to sound like I'm some whiny, like, I'm hiding in the background kind of scene person, but it was like super noticeable to me that I was like, wow, this guy we don't even know who barely knows us somehow is like one of the first people in our industry to notice that we're a partnership and let's talk to them both. So I just want to give you props for that. That was like the, you know, and then you're like, and I live, I love mid-century modern design. And I was like, can we just like, can we just have like a too long hug? Anyway, I just wanted to tell you that I don't know what about you made you realize that and act on it, but then you took him to the Larkspur stairs and gave him calf rabdo. Well, yeah. And then I gave you rabdo. And so I went down a notch in your friend life. But I just, I want to- I always to, appreciate I wanted- getting my ass kicked by my friends. This is a big portion of my life. This is You don't have super mutant friends and then do badly at their thing and not kind of enjoy it. That's how this works. And so- Anyway, I just wanted, I wanted to acknowledge that, Matt. No, that's a big deal to me, Juliet. Like, like I think, and, and you and I talked about it when I had you on on, on my podcast, like, I, I think we get really confused about women's empowerment and what I believe role models should look like. And that's been a big deal for me why, why I'm curating, if, if anything, why it's been important to me to kind of build this group that I'm friends with, right? That, that I could see it. I could see it because I'm a little older than, than anyone else, but seeing people like, you know, Bonnie and then our friends, Dana, you know, Steffi Cohen, as well as uh, Geo with with Barber Brigade, these other women, and these women to me are what women's empowerment is. They're all entrepreneurs. Steffi's a doctor. She's a twenty five time world champion or world record holder in her sport. She's a first generation immigrant who's built everything on her own. Was selling Venezuelan currency back and forth on swings to help pay for school. Right, like. These are the women that did it. These aren't the pretty face that things been handed to them or, or, or something that we're confused by. These are strong, savage individuals that happen to be female. That being female isn't the biggest identifier for them in their lives. Being kick-ass is. And I think that's a focus we should look at more so than the male or female thing. It bums me out where, where I think we lower the bar for women's expectations with what's going on on the planet, who we look at is these big movers and people to look up to, whether that's, oh man, the, the Kardashians or, or someone like that. Meanwhile, dudes have an Elon Musk. Like who, who's the female version of Joe Rogan? Who's, who's got that general influence over the female, right. That has a general influence over the female audience that has to do with health, that has to do with entrepreneurship, that has to do with free thinking. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of diffuse women, but there's no Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss or, you know. Right, and you know, we should have that. We should totally have it. I also appreciate that I want everyone to know that I texted you and was like, look, if we're going to be friends, you need to be make sure that you call my wife and email her first and make it seem like you're really progressive. Oh, don't even try to say he knows if he actually wants to reach you. He needs to email me. Also, I did outside sales for a decade. You don't think I learned how to talk to, to figure out, look, my goal was whatever got me the meeting is how I will learn to communicate with those people. It just turned out that you two ended up being besties. Well, it was um, kind of annoying. Matt's my, because I'm like, Matt's my I friend. love you, Matt Vincent. Look, I had, to, I had to make a ton of people in an industry I had no interest in like me. I get to hang out with people I actually like now. This is so much easier. Still universe building, still decorating, still choosing the right basket for your cactus in the corner. It matters. I understand. It matters. Everything matters. matters. Details matter, man. Where can the people find you, follow you, buy your stuff, support what you're doing? 
learn more. So as a really smart business person and everyone's read in business, the number one thing you should do is change your branding on every single avenue. So I have, (laughs) I hate Matt Vincent uh, is my Instagram. My podcast is umso. The YouTube channel, I think, is Matt Vincent. And then, so right now on the YouTube channel, we're filming just kind of a, the current run of it is all in. And so whatever the new challenge is, my goal is that I apply that same tenacity and know-how and ability that I got from being a world champion to the new thing. And just, you know, what can be done? Like what newbie gains can be rounded up if you apply this same drive to it of like, we have to do the work before anything else. Dude, newbie gains are the best. I'm not trying to keep running after this thing. But can if I run like two 5Ks a week, hold on. Yeah, I think newbie gains are like the new thing. And uh, what I hear someone say the other day, they're like, low-hanging fruit is still fruit. <laughs> so let's, let's pick yeah. all the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. For sure it is, right? You know, and that was, look, I got the same thing after figuring out my diet. Like it was important to me that whenever that shift had to get made and I needed to lose weight, look, I had some other reasons why I wanted to lose weight, mostly getting out of inflammation, doing anything I could to take a couple percentage points away from pain. I just couldn't, I couldn't mentally leave it up for, I wasn't trying everything. And so I was like, I had a cold tub, I had massage therapist, I had, (laughs) everything. And so now I'm pretty good at recovery. If I have a joint that gets mad, guess what? I've got a formula for how to knock that out because I have a ton of experience with it. Everyone, Matt Vincent, Matt has, is a tinkerer. I think you're actually a bonafide inventor if I remember the plaque in your car. Um, but <laughs> Yes, that's true. But, but uh, you also did invent the mobility sleeve. I just want to just bring it back up, which was uh, slipped right on a kettlebell you got to try, you got to, you got to throw a lot of, uh, a lot of stretches before they start to stick to the hamstrings as they say. But that, that's another big part, right? Like failure like that. I, man, I, I, I'll get through this. And this is something that's been a big takeaway for me that I think matters to people is like you can't be afraid to fail. Like failure is key for succeeding. And in fact, success is such a worse teacher than failure. If you can figure out how to fail small and fail often so that you're constantly getting course corrections, that's the key instead of just letting the whole thing burn down because your ego got in the way of saying, this is the direction we said we're going, we're going. But it's constant little failures to be like, oh, we should send that email out an hour earlier. Like The corrections get smaller, the better you get at it, but you're still listening to failures. Or the big picture would be like, we don't need to sell a shirt that says that. <laughs> like it didn't sell that color scheme. Let's just never do that again and burn the inventory. But it's listening how to fail. And that's what helps you in sport, right? Because you try things and you get experience and you go, that didn't work. Let's try something else. And that applies to the rest of your life. But we're talking about like every throw is a new opportunity to fail differently. Right. Which was so hard for me to understand training for powerlifting or Olympic lifting the way that I had been experienced with it. Like for Olympic lifting to me, it's exactly like throwing. It is sub-maximal weight, highly technical. I should be getting yelled at by my coach every attempt on something to fix. Like there shouldn't just be that empty session where I went in and trained. Like I can't imagine sending my Olympic lifting to someone and them reviewing video of it and me not having it done live. Like, that, I don't know how I would have thrown that way. Luckily, I had a decent background in throwing that when I got to the point of training myself, I could do it. But you got to, yeah, you got to be willing to fail. You got to be willing to screw some stuff up and start making mistakes, but allow yourself the ability to go, oh, that was wrong. Move on. Like say, realize you messed up. 
Yeah, yeah. Not not just ruminate over it forever. Yeah, I, I, just I be like, say, okay, that didn't yeah. work. Let's do the next thing. I'll say it also is very yeah. it's very useful to have a partner who tolerates your feeling. Thanks, Jay Star. Hey, ditto. Because I am really good at it. But Gary, and I'll, I'll say this. While we, while we have been nice to each other, something I've never said, as someone who I have zero interest in ever having children, you guys are one of the few that made me go, ah, that's pretty kick-ass. Ah, thanks, Matt Vincent. That may be the nicest compliment ever. Yeah, you guys are one of the few that like, if I do it, it has to go like this. <laughs> George just got into our first fender bender today, and uh, I'm just going to say, call your Uncle Matt. <laughs> no, that's it's not the it's next time call your Uncle next Matt. Time you get on. like one free pass, and then you got to call your Uncle Matt to well, help un- you. Uncle Matt, you know, uh, you're bigger than life in our, our house, and our kids know you, and uh, man, we're there. Lucky to have you as an uncle. And uh, thanks for dressing my children. And then um, just I'll just say that George's boyfriend was wearing a hate shirt the other day, and it's my hate shirt. And I was like, bro. Yeah. yeah. Where'd you get that shirt? Where'd you get that shirt? And he's like, Georgia gave it to, Georgia gave it to me. And so I'm like, oh, the, this is how it begins. We ought to hook him up with that fake Bell and Ross. <laughs> we'll see, I'll send Matt, mail that back to you. That's right. That's right. Matt Vincent, we love you, man. You're the best. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. As always. Anytime. I love you guys. I can't say enough. Thank you for the both of you as for friendship, mentorship, everything. You, you guys have got to, got to be around for a very interesting chapter of my life. And I appreciate, appreciate the help for all of it. <laughs> Many more. Life is long, Matt Vincent. Life I plan is on long. it, man. I hope the next 10 yeah. years are just as exciting. Love you, boy. Love you. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop.